I am here with the uh, remarkable Garrett Lisi. It's been almost seven years since you published uh, an exceptionally simple theory of everything. And it made us kind of a, an impact. Technically, I didn't publish it. Technically, I just put it out on the preprint archive, which is right. how physicists share their papers. Right. Uh, prior to publication or just amongst themselves. Good point. At one point, I was asked to submit it to publish in a journal, but um, I preferred just to have it freely available and accessible mm -hmm. for people to read and to keep the copyright on it myself. Mm -hmm. There's, there are battles going on right now in academic publishing because the, the journals used to provide a valuable service in the dissemination of papers. Mm -hmm. you know, it, the public, publishing a paper is how you got it into the hands of your colleagues. But with the internet, um, especially physicists were among the first to use the internet for the exchange of information, especially papers. So they, they started this site called The Archive. Mm -hmm. Uh, and put their papers on the archive before they submitted them to publication. And physicists, uh, as of the 90s, just started reading all their papers uh, you know, from each other off the archive. And What was the impact of that? I mean, that must have taken a huge uh, area of friction out of the process. It did. It did. It also, it also struck fear in the heart of publishers, because this is their own <laughs> business model. <laughs> right? Yep. So now... Two things happen. I mean, one of vital importance to me, and, and one that is still playing out. Hmm. The thing that, that was of vital importance to me is theoretical scientists were no longer anchored to research libraries. Hmm. Well, we used to be, it used to be if you were a research scientist, you needed a full uh, backing information of a... content of a research library, including all the access to journals, you know, stretching back for many years, and, and, and the recent literature. So they were the gatekeepers of knowledge in the past. Yes. And now with the web... Now it's all on the net. It's democratized. So as a theoretical researcher now, you can go anywhere in the world and, and do your work as long as you can pop open your laptop. Mm -hmm. I mean, that connection. And Maui's pretty nice. Had you been here before you... Um, I visited Hawaii uh, a few times uh, through my life, and I, especially on surf trips. Mm -hmm. I love the place. So when I got my PhD in 99... I traveled around a bit, and a friend and I decided to come and spend a, a bunch of time in, in Maui. It was mm -hmm. about a one-way ticket, and came over with a bunch of surfboards, got here, and, <laughs> and uh, learned how to windsurf, and uh, hopped around the island a bit. And I've, you know, traveled elsewhere some, but always end up getting homesick for Maui. It's hard not to. It's an amazing place. Yeah. Having lived on the big island for over a year, um, the first time I got here, which was about three and a half weeks ago, um, first time ever being here, I was struck at how much the rocks didn't want to kill me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because so much on the Big Island is really razor sharp. Yeah. There's, and, but there's things I love about... Hasn't had time for erosion to take its course. And of course there's things about the Big Island that I actually do miss. But it's it's an amazing place. You know, there's, there's pluses and minuses of both. And I can see why you decided to call home here. Yeah, I do, I do like the Big Island. It's a great, great spot. But Maui had, the, had a nice combination for me. But it turns out Maui's better for, uh, for wind. Mm. The way the island is set up with the natural venturi between the, the two mountains, mm -hmm. yeah, the wind is very consistent. And it's fantastic for windsurfing and kitesurfing. Mm. It's one of the best spots in the world. Um, especially with the combination of wind and waves. This place is just a wonderful playground all winter. Mm -hmm. so, so this... This lifestyle I had, where I sort of split off and uh, just worked out of my laptop, um, it wasn't entirely easy. I mean, I started out with the same wall full of physics books that you know, every PhD ends up with. Mm -hmm. And you, know, you can't travel with that. So I had to either uh, digitize it myself or get digital copies of all these things uh, bit by bit. For the, the ones I really liked, I ended up just converting the information I needed onto the wiki. Mm -hmm. In physics, authors all use different notation anyway. So if you want it to be consistent and hold together, you've got to convert it to, hopefully convert it to one sensible notation. What's, what's the expression that a, a theorist would rather use another researcher's toothbrush than their notation? <laughs> you know, you, you present some new notation to somebody, it's, it's 
overreact like it's in a very as it's very distasteful. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> Have, you, seen Have that? you invented any interesting? Uh... Oh sure, <laughs> every theorist has. <laughs> but yours are probably more uh, uh, aesthetic. Well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was one of the things I was really, uh, you know, originally coming from a design background. I thought, oh my god, like. This is an elegant representation of these forces. Even if it's not exactly where you want to be yet, it's such a great, beautiful starting point. You, the way that you're predicting particles we haven't discovered yet and the way that you're representing the things click into E8. And uh, I don't know if you did the graphics yourself. Or I, some I, I did, you've done. And, and thank you. Because but, it was really, it was like, wow, that, that could be how the universe works. But I was, I have to say, I was more surprised to find these visual representations than anyone. <laughs> because I had spent, you know, the better part of 10 years working with the mathematics of the standard model and general relativity, mm -hmm. purely algebraically. Yeah. So there were no, there was no visual representation of this at all. Mm -hmm. It was only when I had amassed this whole collection of algebra and when looking on a LARP to see if it was part of something larger, Hmm. that I ran into the exceptional Lie algebras and then their representations in terms of these graphical patterns, right? In terms of these uh, patterns, uh, what, what, what the mathematicians called weight diagrams. Mm -hmm. And the Lie algebras, in case people don't know, are basically these really complex, is it fair to call them shapes? Not really shapes, but... Well, a Lie group is a complex shape. Right. It's a complex high-dimensional shape. So we can't exist, you can't really build one of these. Sure, you, sure, you can build like, like a circle is the simplest one. Okay. And you can just keep building from there. But something like E8, that exists in many, it's many, many... 248 dimensions. sets of circles twisting around one another. They're circles? For the compact form. Huh. For the non-compact forms, they're circles like purple <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if the entirety of the universe was described by a series of circles. Um, you have to consider uh, how that might deform. Hmm. So this universe we see around us is lumpy. Thankfully. <laughs> I mean, otherwise life probably wouldn't have happened. That's right. The lumps if everything us. was uniform, then... Yes. <laughs> so we don't live in a mathematically perfect state. Uh, perhaps excitations are more. Mm-hmm. So that would, that would seem to suggest that ellipsoids and non-circulars are required. Yes. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, however, you know, as, as the universe evolves, uh, eventually stars burn out and congregate into black holes, which evaporate mm -hmm. into empty, expanding space, and which gets colder and colder and emptier and emptier until it's perfectly flat, approximately completely symmetric. So you're a proponent of the uh, deep freeze yeah. theory? Yeah. Hmm. Which, uh, which is nice because it, it means that the universe eventually becomes perfectly a, a perfect hyperboloid, hmm. which is a Lie group, which is nice. Call that the heat death of the universe, don't they? Yeah. yeah that, that's a much more apocalyptic and dramatic term for it. <laughs> but it's kind of sad in a way. <laughs> Just think of it as everything smooths out in the end. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. That's good. <laughs> That's good. And it, of course, way of it. the other side of that being some people think in the deep freeze where everything expands out forever and becomes with the average temperature zero. And the, uh, the component to that, would, uh, the opponent to that being the big crunch, which is that somehow yeah, that's much more hellish. bring, yeah. bring no, things like back it. together into a, but it makes the universe like a gigantic phoenix, which is kind of cool. It is. I mean, well, <laughs> there was a, a huge bias towards a closed cosmology like that. Mm -hmm. And that's what most physicists would have told you the universe probably is if you had asked really what their opinion was. So it was, it came as very much of a shock fairly recently when uh, uh, Saul Perlmutter, who's a very amazing guy, by the way, and several other teams found that uh, the expansion of the universe is actually accelerating. Yeah. And it just did not fit with people's uh, biases. Mm -hmm. But data, data wins. Mm -hmm. yeah, and that was very clear. It's great. Well, it, it brings to mind, and I want to hear what you're going to go with this, but it brings to mind 
this this question of how does a physicist disattach their own personal bias? I mean, is that what separates a, a good physicist from a great physicist? Is the great physicist is able to try and let go what their preconceived notions are? Or can you totally do that? You have to entertain possibilities other than your bias, but you can't escape your bias. Mm. So, uh, I mean, you acknowledge your bias. Yes, yes. And your bias happens to be... Uh, happens to have been very influential in your bias, I happen to consider rather beautiful. <laughs> At least the well, I'm, I'm also biased by the, the, the unusual path that my own research program took. Because like, like I said, I, mean, I, I was working purely with equations. Right. And then having assembled all this over many years, mm -hmm. found this mathematical object that just happened to fit with this you know, purely mathematical structure I put together, and then it turns out it's pretty. Mm -hmm. You know, this is actually a very, very beautiful, perhaps the most beautiful mathematical object that's matching what I've been working on. And to find that was just mind-blowing. And, and, and then seeing these, these, I was seeing these weight diagrams that were very pretty, mm -hmm. and not thinking they had anything to do with physics until I realized that what these mathematicians are calling weight diagrams, physicists refer to these things as charges. And that what I was actually looking at is the physical charges of elementary particles in many dimensions uh, plotted in various ways, hmm. which is just fantastic. That if you actually look at the physical charges, you know, the electric charge, the strong charge, the weak charge, the gravitational spin uh, of all these elementary particles, and you just plot them out, each along its own axis, and then look at the pattern of charges, you see that it exactly matches the structures of these Lie algorithms. Yeah. Cryptographically. Clicks in the E8 like, yeah. a, like a glove. But not perfectly. For well, some of the later stuff. There's at the risk of playing devil's advocate here. There are there are problems with the fit. Mm -hmm. So when you do fit the standard model, including all three generations of Fermi lines, into this E8 Lie algebra, um, it says some very strange things. Mm -hmm. If you look at the way these three generations should work, what charges they have, they don't all appear to have the same charges simultaneously. But E8 does have this symmetry called triality, which is what I'm currently working on mm -hmm. to describe these three generations of fermions in a way that will that will hopefully match up exactly with reality. Yeah, click it together. Yeah. I remember that term from your paper, and uh, I didn't I didn't understand it <laughs> when I when I read it because uh, this isn't precisely my background, but it, it sounded like it would imply a lot more symmetry. It does. It does. It, it implies a lot more symmetry. It's also a, a, a very, very tight fit hmm. with, with something like, um, I mean, E8 has 248 uh, directions, with orthogonal directions in it, mm -hmm. um, each one of which would correspond to an elementary particle state. Hmm. And out of those, I think all but 18 or so uh, would match up precisely with standard model with known standard model particles. That's so. That's basically two hundred and twenty something out of two hundred forty eight. Yeah. Click yeah. in. Yeah, and the other eighteen would be new particles that maybe the LHC will see. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. So that's uh, <laughs> it's wildly exciting. But like I said, it doesn't. Uh, right now, it's not clear precisely how it works, and that's and, and it's been very tricky to work with. It's it's mm. very few people work with non-compact Lie algebras and, and uh, their explicit structure. Is that because a Lie, a Lie algebra is describing a shape that just goes on to infinity at many of its points? It, the non-compact. The, the Lie group does. The Lie group does. So the distinction, I mean, is, is probably too much for a, a, a lay audience, but for a Lie group is the shape. And the Lie algebra describes what the shape looks like when you're in it at one point. Okay. So, like the so, face so of a die, for instance? So it's like, it's like when uh, the Lie group, it, I mean, if you think of the, the Earth, okay. the surface of the Earth, this is uh -huh. a two-dimensional sphere. Um, you can think of this geometrically as a two-dimensional sphere. Its algebra would mm -hmm. be you're sitting at one point and you can go in two orthogonal directions. North or south. Yeah. So that, that would be the algebra. So that, uh, okay. So, so that's, that's, you back that's up, then the you're doing versus the, the algebra. algebra. Okay. Almost like a map versus a globe. Yeah. Now what's going on with these diagrams is 
you're looking with the with the lead group as you move in any direction, these algebraic directions twist around one another. Just like when you move around on the sphere, uh, north and south move around, they twist. Right, right. And uh, you choose different directions from where you're sitting, and they will twist in different amounts around each of those directions. Hmm. And if the directions you've chosen are compact directions, which is they, they, they turn back on each other, then they have to twist an integral number of times, like one, two, three, four, or five times, because they have right. to match up with, with themselves if they go all the way around that circle. Right. Uh, and, and these correspond to elementary particle states and their charges. So you simply count up the number of twists among these algebraic elements, and you plot them out, and it makes this pretty pattern. And this pattern describes the geometric structure of the Lie group. Mm. So is that th is this the same uh, graphic or representation that you showed at your it is. very it well is. known TED talk now? It is. So these so these these turn out to be remarkably pretty structures. And they and they the patterns themselves. I mean, people just see them as pretty patterns that have a lot of structure to them. But every single and thing in there is extremely meaningful. And it, and they are and not only is it meaningful, but it also describes a much prettier, continuous, smooth geometry, mm. which is fantastic. So you, you don't want to think that it's these finite patterns that are twisting over space-time in some way. It's actually uh, space-time is being described by a smooth geometry that matches what the patterns are telling you for its structure. Right. So there are a couple layers of abstraction there. That's It's kind of hard to, to make that leap. <laughs> so wait, if I understand you correctly, you're saying not only can you appreciate the, the beauty of this idea that these particles fit, but you also appreciate, wow, that's how the universe actually works. Yeah, yeah. So whenever you or, you know, hopefully this can be worked out because there's a couple little things that the other generations of the particles that aren't yeah, well, exactly little, little things. I mean, they've been hanging <laughs> me up now for many years. Uh, see, <laughs> but I, I'm making I'm progress a, on it. Yeah, you're making progress on it. And I think in a unified field theory, a theory that can describe all of the forces, is more or less inevitable, given enough time, given well, the well, humanity. the universe is just one thing, right? Yeah. <laughs> so there has to be just one bit of mathematics that describes it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, and mathematics has to be consistent. Internally consistent. And so what I'm curious about is, like, what are the... What, what can we do with that? Well... It's not like it's going to tell you the secrets of the heart. <laughs> oh, no. At least not without a significant, powerful simulation. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, but it would tell you how things work at a fundamental level. It, it would tell you fundamentally what this universe is that we're in. Hmm. It, would, it would tell you perhaps that we're in some, not only that we're in some beautiful geometric object, which we already know, Mm -hmm. But specifically, which one and mm. what it's doing. And then you could even predict, would they be able to predict with almost complete certainty, basically, like, how how dark matter forms and, and ramifications in, like that? In principle, yes. But in practice, these computations can be devilishly hard. Like, right now, we have a, a fully... Uh, we have full confidence in this standard model and even the description of the including the description of the strong force, mm -hmm. which is the uh, how gluons bind quarks together and each other uh, inside atomic nuclei and generate all their properties. Mm -hmm. But if you actually try to do this, and people do, it's it's wildly difficult. You know, you start getting into larger numbers of quarks, and things are just far too hard to compute. You mean they try to uh, simulate, or they actually try to build their right. own atoms? So, so um, if, you, if you try to do uh, what's called lattice gauge theory, um, the, the computations are, are very, very difficult you know, for more than a couple of particles. Hmm. So, and so to actually calculate anything is very, very difficult. Hmm. So even if, in principle, you have a perfectly adequate theory that is thought to be accurate, mm -hmm. um, all the way down, as far as you want to look, to actually do the computation and figure out a prediction from it can be very hard. It can be practically impossible. Even so, if you have... So even if you have a, theory of a, a fully satisfactory theory of everything and say, yep, this is, it, this is how the universe works, um, you might not be able to do the computations 
to make predictions from it. Why? It, it, it's just a matter of uh, the practical difficulty. I mean, nature... I Is mean, it because it's too complicated? We don't have the, the processing power to do it within... Yeah. A... Yep. Hmm. So that's just a matter of time, though. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Barring some catastrophe, yes. Mm. Yeah. But, you know... I mean, uh, you'd also... Following along Moore's law... Yeah. If, if, you, if you are willing to extrapolate like that, which you shouldn't be. I'm not. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I, mean, I don't think it's so much faster that eventually these computations do become more viable for larger and larger numbers. Mm-hmm. So uh, things do progress, I and mean, especially anything related to computer science is, is hitched to this uh, progression of computer power, which is great. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, that seems to be what is driving a lot of uh, technological improvements. Doesn't that make sense too as well? Because it's my suspicion, maybe deluded or not, that the universe could be some kind of massive simulation too. <laughs> and that, that is that is possible. Yeah, I but, mean, but they, if it, it is a simulation, I mean, it's a they they picked a hard one to simulate. Because <laughs> quantum field theory is really hard to simulate. Would have been easier to simulate a classical universe. <laughs> yeah. Oh, <laughs> or, maybe. Or, or, or any number of finite automata that are perfectly capable of. Uh, supporting complex interactions, depending on your requirements. Right. You don't need you don't need full quantum field theory just to have complex entities interacting with one another. Mm. I mean, Conway's game of life will do it, right? <laughs> it can be much easier. So yeah, if if this is a simulation, maybe it would be a simulation from a universe that's more like this one. So if this is a simulation, it might be. The simulation of the history of a of the universe one level up. It's more like that. It's quite a bit like this one. Hmm. It's just an idea I've been playing around with. No, it was, it was more than you playing with, with the simulation hypothesis. It's very. It, it's a hard one to counter because if there there's so many billions of stars in our galaxy and billions of galaxies galaxies in the observable universe, that it's mm-hmm. it's almost a certainty that there are many many universes being simulated that would be indistinguishable from natural universes to the inhabitants. So that just by probability, it's more likely that we're, we would be in a simulated universe than in a, whatever a natural one is. So what does what the, the, uh, the number of galaxies have to do with the probability of if the whole universe is simulated or not? Oh, um, because you need a high, highly technologically advanced civilizations to be developing, have developed the computational power to simulate the universe. So, by having billions of... of You're saying it's more likely... Oh, so you're almost taking it back a step. That if our universe could be a simulation based on another one, then that real universe would most likely have all these galaxies as well, which would increase the probability that one of them would have figured out how to do it in the first place? Yes. Okay. I had to take that forward and then take it back and then turn it around. Yes. <laughs> so you have to make all sorts of typicality assumptions yeah. in this argument. But there, I mean, typicality is, is usually reasonable. Yeah. But in some ways it's not. Because, I mean, especially from a, a, a very personal perspective, I mean, each of us looking out is the most atypical creature in, the, in our entire universe. From a subjective standpoint? Yes, yes. Sure. I mean, you, standing here, right here in this moment of time, in this body, you are the most atypical creature, and this is the most atypical moment in existence. Are you saying that just because I happen to be the only one who knows my thoughts? Not only that, but your, your seat of perception is right here at this moment. Yeah. Kind of brings to mind with the with the uh, masters of old we're talking about in terms of reality creation and the, the universe being indistinguishable from the self? Uh, the subjective universe. The subjective universe. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, I mean I'm more of a, I'm much more of a crusty old scientist who has <laughs> come to believe in a, the existence of an objective universe. Mostly, mostly through uh, Occam's razor. It's just simpler. 
mm. to imagine that there's one objective universe in which all of us are playing parts, rather than all of us, you know, subjectively creating our own universes that are all messing, meshing together somehow. The you know, it's funny as you say that, Garrett. I realize that I'm not in either camp. I almost don't. I almost don't even worry about that what? in a weird way. Oh, I because I, I go back and forth. I usually don't worry about it either. Usually, I just uh, you know play with mathematics and try to figure out how our universe works. If I can just figure out this one, I'll be happy. So why? <laughs> so, what does that look like for you when you're when you're working with it? Uh, do you have a? Do you spend a lot of time in Mathematica? Do you, I do use Mathematica a lot. Do you? So I've got a I've got a, a handful <laughs> of monstrous Mathematica notebooks I use regularly <laughs> and, and tweak and try different things with. Um, I know I'm not doing that all the time. Um, so yeah, uh, I use Mathematica quite a bit. Um, I also just use a you know pencil and paper for you know sketching out ideas very quickly. Yeah. Um, I feel like it's going to be a long time before we have something that's as immediate as pencil. Maybe not yeah. a long time, probably seven years. But <laughs> <laughs> that's forever. <laughs> you know, in today's crazy freewheeling internet land, that's a long time. So you still you still work with with the, with the, with the dead trees. I do. You know, I do. just to sketch things out briefly. If I'm going to do, and then if these things solidify a bit, they end up on my wiki. Right. Which is quite nice for connecting ideas together. I think anybody interested in, in theory of everything should probably bookmark your wiki. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm going to after this. <laughs> but it's highly mathematical, and it's it's. Um, I do make it publicly viewable, but it's not publicly editable. It is just my what? own. Well, it's uh, your words. It's your wiki. Yeah. It's, a, it's sort of my augmented brain. Right. Do you have a... I'm just curious, like, since we're talking about your workflow, do you have, a, like, a, a little bit of a ritual to get you into the zone of I don't. going into focus? Um, in fact, I could probably benefit from such a thing. Hmm. I find I do the best work fairly early in the morning hmm. while other people are still in bed um, and the world's nice and quiet. Like, right after sunrise? Yeah. Or even a little before. I find it very easy to get up at sunrise anywhere more than anywhere I've ever lived. Hawaii is a hey, yeah. it's a sunrise. <laughs> yeah, the sun's coming up and it's get really up. pretty also. Absolutely. So yeah, and then the rest of the world doesn't seem to get up until nine or so. So that gives you a good three hours mm-hmm. usually to get some good work in. But, uh, but you know, the surf can be awfully good in the morning also. Uh oh. <laughs> <laughs> so there, there, there are often things to draw you away. Yeah. But I, I don't have a set work pattern. If I'm really work, working on something, I'll just work through the day on it. Hmm. Um, or if the surf's really good, I'll put everything aside and go surf all day. <laughs> it just uh, depends on the condition and what I'm working on. And from a psychological point of view, one could argue that both of those are two sides of the same coin in a way. Because, you know, goodness knows that your unconscious mind is still thinking about those things oh, when yeah. you're catching a wave. Oh, yeah. Now, it's also very healthy to step away from intense work mm-hmm. regularly. Because if you get if you really end up too focused on it, you're you'll just end up banging your head against the wall and getting nowhere. So you really have to step away from it and do stuff for fun to clear your mind before you can get back and, and maybe try to make some new progress in a slightly different direction. How do you find that balance? You just kind of intuitive at this point <laughs> I'm, 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 or you just you just wait till you see blood on the keyboard <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm really the, the problem is often in the other direction is how do you uh, uh, motivate to sit down and do work when it's so pretty outside <laughs> well it's understandable I mean this is one of the most beautiful places I've ever been to yeah this, this place is just a, a, a wonderful playground it really is I finally got to go up to Haleakala uh, last week thanks to a friend and I mean, you're at the top of the island, 10,023 feet, sunset, you're above the clouds, and there's, there are species there that aren't anywhere else on earth. The silver swords are so gorgeous. And I could see how this place, um, yeah, it is, it kind of feels like a playground for adults. It gets even better when you take a paraglider up there and jump off of it. Not supposed to do that anymore, Pierre. (laughs) I got whole, my friends are paragliders. (laughs) 
I keep hearing about. I, I think that might be the sport of Maui, paragliding. I mean, besides it's nice windsurfing, here. it is nice. I've seen it more than anywhere else. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty nice. Oh man, you got to be careful though up there, you especially. Up there. Yeah, you do. The most likely way to die is a pilot making poor decisions at launch. Yeah. yeah. Launching when you shouldn't be. A friend of my friend smashed into a a hill, oh. and he broke some ribs, and. Um, and then another, and it, that, that was a while back, and apparently just last week somebody broke their neck. So, be careful, kids, when you paraglide, because there's a reason why uh, yeah. there's different grades. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One, two, three. Yeah. Do you set like um, like uh, monthly goals? Uh, I mean, this isn't really something you can even goal. You, what no, is the, I don't have such. Such goals. I mean, I have I have things I, I want to do, but they're mostly uh, either ridiculously big things I'm going after, or it's like a little thing like unified field theory, <laughs> or, 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 or small little things that I know I can do just with a bit of work. Yeah, like putting together a good uh, collection of references for a bibliography. Hmm. Are you working on a book, or that would that be for a paper? Um, I'm currently working on a paper hmm. um, that I'm trying to keep under book length. <laughs> ah. Can you talk about, is it related to E8? Um, it is. So it's, uh, the paper I'm working on currently is a new way of thinking about space-time as a deforming Lie group. Deforming? Yes. That makes it sound like it's... Uh... Lumpy. Uh, so if you, take a, if you take one of these perfectly smooth, right. uh, elegant, high-dimensional shapes, and you excite it, you, know, you let it go a little wavy uh -huh. in some directions... Huh. Um, what happens? Well, it it you, you, it's it'll, it'll sort of ring for a little bit. What do you mean by ring? Um, like it it'll form a resonance with other. Yeah. yeah. So Parts and, of and, and these or? and and these directions that uh, it's ringing in will sort of propagate around within the ligu and and interact. Oh. And this is this new picture is essentially what I think the universe is. I actually think that the universe is a is a Lie group gone a bit wavy. Hmm. So is this paper an update to, in a way, an um, update it's to a, It's a significantly different geometric framework, but it's one that will allow you to derive the previous one in a more elegant way. So, oh. so pre the, the previous geometric description, which was entirely uh, in agreement with our current geometric understanding of quantum field theory, right. is that there are these Lie groups as geometric objects twisting over our four-dimensional space-time. Twisting over? Twisting over. So they're not in space-time, they're, they're other directions orthogonal in space-time and that twist over it. And space-time is like inside it? No, space-time is entirely separate and the Lie groups twist over it. Okay. And how the Lie groups twist over it describes what happens in, in space-time. Okay. So, so all the particles and everything that you see moving around in space-time, including us, would be the result of Lie groups and what's called representations, twisting over our space-time. Mm. So this new description, space-time, as a four-dimensional hyperboloid, uh, would be embedded inside a large Lie group of infinite extent, and then we consider how this Lie group deforms, how it goes wavy, and now you get subgroups of that twisting over the space-time, which previously were the Lie groups twisting over space-time. So you get the same structure out plus some other information. And it turns out to be a much more elegant uh, description of what, you know, how, how all this stuff comes to be. Starting from a more... Because you can just start from a single Lie group, period. What were you starting from before? Before you had to start with a four-dimensional base space-time and a Lie group over it. Oh. So it's even more Occam's razor. Yeah, yeah. It would just be our universe is, is a Lie group that's become exciting. Hmm. And, and is and is ringing ringing down from that excitation until it will eventually be smooth again. Which would be the heat death. Yeah, we talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. So that that ringing describes the um, the lumps. Are the were they the nodes and the troughs and the crests of those waves of rings, or am I making a strange? Yeah, you wouldn't need it describe it that way. You just describe it as uh, interacting, uh, and these interacting waves are all the matter and forces we see. Hmm. 
It's it, it's definitely elegant. Yeah, you, I mean, you can't get more elegant. <laughs> starting with the most beautiful mathematical geometric object and, and uh, but you're, kicking it a bit. Hey, but wait a minute, though. If that turns out to be the case, like if the math predicts the particles in which the way that they, they really are, mm -hmm. and that's the case, then that would tell us something new about the origin of the universe too, wouldn't it? Right. So if you look at, uh, at this, it would, if you describe our four-dimensional universe as legal, mm -hmm. it would actually imply that our universe is infinitely old. So it That's would, uh, unusual. So it would, it would say that our universe has been expanding exponentially forever. But don't we have observational evidence to show that that isn't true? Well, uh, we can only see uh, back to what's called the surface of last scattering. Which is that cosmic which background is, radiation yeah, from the big bang, Yeah, which is when matter right? throws out. So 14 billion years ago, give or take, the big bang, everything was much closer together and hotter. Mm -hmm. And it was so hot and so close together that you couldn't see through it. Right. Um, but now, since things have expanded, Everything's cooled, and we now see that background when we look out as the, the four-degree Kelvin cosmic microwave background. Well, there's a vacuum now, vacuum in air quotes. Yes. Yeah. But you're saying, you're saying that, there's, that, that there's a time before that background. Right, so it was just hotter. So you can go back. So if, so if this is correct, this would say that you could go back forever, and the universe was hotter and hotter the further back you went. All the way back as far as you want to go, forever. Hotter and hotter. Right. So it meant that the universe has been exponentially expanding forever. Wow. So that means that it didn't really have a conventional beginning if, if right. it goes infinitely into the past. Right. But there was a point at which uh, you couldn't see, you can't see back further. So this would mean that the the bang, as we conventionally think about it, didn't really happen. Right, it's more of a big whoosh. Yeah. But it was expanding. Yes, exponentially. But there's got to be a limit to that. I mean, there's got to be a limit to temperature, to is doesn't there? No. <laughs> <laughs> there, there's no, you know, fifth law of thermodynamics that says you can't be get get things infinitely hot. Guess not. <laughs> That's a strange one. So that means that the universe isn't really so much a wave as it is. It's um, almost like you spun a top, but but you never started spinning it. But it's been slowing down the whole time. Um, I'm not sure what the best way to think about it is. Um, I try to stay away from analogies like that. Yeah, it's the top's not a good analogy. Cut that I, I try to I try to stick to our actual mathematical geometrical understanding of what's going on as best I can because that seems to be what works the best. I mean, I'd rather I'd rather spend my time trying to actually describe that mathematics and geometry rather than try to reach for analogies. I don't blame you. Because yeah. there's plenty of bad analogies floating around there. The universe <laughs> is like an old man on a Ferris wheel. Oh, you're killing me. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah. His name is Leroy. <laughs> Does he have a pet? <laughs> and the pet is the moon. No, no. No, no beginning, essentially. Uh, yeah, yeah, you're hurting me at this one. <laughs> no, 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 no. I was actually jumping back over and being uh, like, yeah, no beginning, yeah. the, idea, right. the idea of a universe having no beginning is extremely strange to us. It is, but that's... Uh, like, but it could be the case, you're saying. Yeah. But what does that say about the multiverse, if there is... Other I prefer not to think about, or I prefer not to talk about the multiverse in this universe. You're welcome to talk about them in the others. <laughs> Another theory, not entirely, uh, you know. Um, I'm, I'm happy to entertain for some small amount of time the possible existence of other universes. And it's fun to consider. Um, but you have to stick to the principles of science, which is you want what you're doing to be testable in principle. And hopefully replicatable. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So if, if, your, if your work on multiverses can make some testable prediction about this one, then great. It's still science. If it can't, it's not. Yeah, true. Such as the quantum slit experiment, which 
I'm I'm curious about would the, would your work ex- help explain light as a wave versus a particle? Oh, so you're talking about a, a fundamental description of quantum mechanics? Um, well, isn't that where the quantum uni- the different universes came really came into play when are, they did that there, quantum there state experiment? There are several different multiverses. There's the fact simply that our universe appears to be infinite in spatial extent. So just by virtue of being infinite in spatial extent, there are it, it, it's almost a certainty that there are many other copies of you. That's terrible. In other parts of this spatial universe, which is infinite, appears to be infinite in spatial extent. Because if it's infinite, that means that there are, are no. another Earth out there. Yep. But that's not a very that's not the one people usually mean. There's also the quantum mechanical multiverse, which is there are different there appear to be different branches of quantum reality all interfering with one another mm-hmm. uh, to produce what we see is the effects of quantum mechanics. Right. And that's just the, that is the most straightforward interpretation of what the mathematics of quantum mechanics uh, describes. So you're saying multi-universe is only one way to interpret that math. It is. So there, there are other interpretations of quantum mechanics in which there's only one objective universe. Hmm. I personally, I like the, the quantum multiverse idea. There's yet another multiverse, which is the different universes with different physical laws. Hmm. Right, so maybe maybe there's another universe in which the proton has a slightly different mass, mm-hmm. or the electrons yeah. l- l- lower mass, or yeah, who knows? Uh, you know, wh- whatever you want to imagine. And so and there, there are many levels of these things. You can keep going. So these days, when people talk about multiverse theories, they're talking about that one—the one where there are different different universes with different physical laws. And maybe in those universe, maybe some of those universes are described by string theory, but I don't think this one is. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I, I, I want to know what this universe is, and I think we have plenty of uh, plenty to go on. Me too. I think <laughs> there's some good minds <laughs> looking at it. Yeah. Definitely. Wow. I want to. Is is there anything else you wanted to say along those lines? I also want to touch on uh, what you're doing here. Well, I've been thinking of all this stuff. I've been you know hopping around from friend's house to friend's house, basically. I mean, when I got my PhD in 99, a lot of my friends uh, went off and worked on this strange new internet stuff <laughs> and ended up becoming quite wealthy. So they, they um, all, they all, a lot of them you know, bought houses and raised families and, and you know, sold companies. And, and, uh, this would have been the dot-com bubble. There were, there were quite a few of them did quite well. Hmm. And uh, you know, so I was cruising around with my laptop and my, <laughs> my surfboard and saying, hey, can I crash at your house? You're not using it. Where's my internet? <laughs> Is that how uh, in in the uh, in the New Yorker article was written about you? It said you were house sitting in your uh, what was it? Near Tahoe. In Tahoe, that's right. That's exactly right. So yeah. This is a, a very good friend of mine named Rich Drews, who kindly uh, loaned me the use of his house in Tahoe very for friendly. two years. <laughs> <laughs> that's a long house sit. I've house sit before, but never. <laughs> Um, which was which was great, and um, it turns out that uh, taking your laptop to somebody else's house in a wonderful location, and hanging out there where you don't have to worry about anything, and while you do your work is wonderfully productive. Mm-hmm. You don't have to think about you, you typically don't have to worry that much about repairing stuff or you know or paying a mortgage or or you know all, all, all this overhead. Right. You're just you know hanging out, working on your own thing, maybe you know getting together to cook meals with uh, with others. Yeah, it's, it's just it's just a, a very simple but productive environment. I imagine that would be especially helpful for people in the the research sciences who are very dependent upon grants in a lot of cases, or are just don't have a grant and are doing what they feel that they must do. Yeah, if, they, if someone just wants to work on something, regardless of you know if they have grant support for it or not, if they just want to you know settle in and really work on a problem on their own theoretically. Um, they need very little in the way of support. Basically, you need a place to live, stuff to eat, good. Yeah. And internet connection. <laughs> yeah. That's the thing that's changed. Yeah. And, and, and so it's, uh, so theorists are very low overhead. It's true. If they really want to work on something, they will. So when I got all this attention for the theory going so well, mm-hmm. and, uh, and then you were invited to speak at TED. Yeah, so I was wondering what to do with all this attention, and, and it occurred to me that 
I can try to take the lifestyle I'd had for years, which is hopping around from beautiful house to beautiful house and, and working on stuff, and make this a thing, you know, call it a science hostel, and basically encourage people who have vacation houses to run them as small scientific institutes. <laughs> so if you have a vacation house in a beautiful place and you're not really using it, um, you could have a, a bunch of theorists hang out and work there and live there. And if you want to hang out with them, you have uh, wildly entertaining dinner conversations, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure there'd be no uh, lack of that. Yeah. You know, some of these uh, theorists can <laughs> be very amusing company. I know. Not, science, scientists, yeah, I mean, usually they're not usually laser-focused. I mean, they, we, right. we try to keep track of what's going on in science more broadly around us. And so uh, it's good to have friends who are scientists, mm. it turns out. Some of, the, <laughs> some, of my, some of the people closest to me actually are scientific. And, then, and keep your eyes on the ones that don't seem to be getting older. <laughs> Longevity research. We talked about that earlier. <laughs> what are you doing? It's always Noni. They're always talking about Noni. I think there is something to the Noni. There's you ever nothing, bite into a raw there's, there's Noni? There's nothing to the Noni other than it tastes terrible. It's it tastes terrible. Oh, it has antioxidants. I think there might, there might be something to the Noni. There's at least as much to the Noni as there is to blueberries. Um, hey, I mean, I like blueberries and they taste much better. Which I like a lot more. Yeah. So, then, but that's that, that's such a great idea. It almost seems like an idea. You seem to be really good at coming up with ideas that seem obvious in retrospect. <laughs> that's me, master of the obvious. <laughs> no, but listen to what I said though. That's a big compliment because, in retrospect, at the time you're like, I don't know. But when you say science hostile, having people come in who who are doing good work, low maintenance, trustworthy people that you, I wouldn't I mean if I had a vacation home, I would definitely do that. Yeah. And the the idea is not only are these people vetted, you know, they've got you, if you have a PhD and you're It doesn't ensure you're not yeah. a slob. <laughs> no. That's for sure. He's pretty messy, isn't he? No, he's super clean. Where was I going? Oh, yeah, so, so the um <laughs> the I have a couple practical questions about that, but I'll let you finish your... Well, what I was going to say is that if someone is taking... If a very talented and intelligent person is taking the time in their lives to really dedicate themselves to solving some basic scientific problem, they're really dedicating the most valuable thing in the universe towards the betterment of mankind. So it, it seems great if we can help such people by giving them a place to work. The most valuable thing being their time and attention. Yes. So you, you you sort of you know select for ones who also make good company. <laughs> They're housebroken. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's my idea to put together a network of such people, mm -hmm. and um, and then put together a network of of these small scientific institutes uh, run by run by uh, whatever hosts are willing to do this, mm -hmm. and call it. Um, Science Hostel or the hmm. Science Institute Network or something like that. Hmm. Uh, some other friends... I might be able to help you with the name. <laughs> I'm pretty good at names. It's, it's much more fun to call it a just a small science institute. Hmm. But that confuses people too. It's a little bit like the Singularity Institute. It's not an institute. It's not. <laughs> not about the singularity. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> There's no no singularity, no institute. You're saying it's an anachronism, basically. I wonder if you could do a play on the word. I mean, we're spitballing now, but I wonder if you could do a play on the word think tank, like um, hostile tank or something. But think tanks are directed. It's true. And so, so there's the, you know, the RAND Institute, and there's, there's, there's all sorts of... Uh, Those futurist people, well, they were sort of not directed and sort of directed at the same time. Yeah, so there are, there are plenty of... <laughs> Call it a Schrodinger's direction? Yeah. <laughs> right. It's the worst it's, physics joke I'll make all day, Institute for people with poor sense of direction. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, so that's, that's why I bought um, this house here. That was your thinking when you we actually got yep. this place. So How long have you been? We looked at it, and I could I could tell. I'm walking the backyard. I'm like, I want a you know guest cabin here, office here, guest cabin here. So and you've you got so much light coming in. Mm -hmm. it's, it's been, been great. We've had, 
We've had 20 or 30 visitors come through. Yeah. It was really strange when we moved into this place. It's been, uh, it's been great. It is and always has been a little house with large delusions of grandeur, but like the ceiling, which is rather low and not of a nice material, is painted gold. And well, that's a terrible. Yeah, we had to large, do a lot of work on terrible terrible plantation-style <laughs> ceiling fans, and like this room was neon yellow, and this room was gray, and this room was dark green and dark brown, and no skylight. It was like a cave. Not anymore. <laughs> I've been describing everything around me as as a picture of loveliness. <laughs> Actually, one time, the last time I was interviewed, I felt bad because uh, I had a lot of little little changes I had wanted to make because they, you know, they. I mean, punctuation errors, really. I was How long misquoted. Have you been writing a right. You I were misquoted, but not by somebody who had ill intentions or anything. It was. Um, I did an art, I entered a piece into the Art Maui contest, and they, I didn't know this, but they have like a pre-selection where the state comes by and they buy certain pieces to put in an art museum, and they selected my piece, and so, awesome, right? But I was totally surprised. Because I'm like, I never knew about that, <laughs> like, that, was the that they quote. actually do that. Yeah. <laughs> and so like, they called me up, and, and in the morning, there was a reporter who called me, and I was just waking up, and she's like, how do you feel about this? And I'm like, oh, no. I'm just, well, she's, she's like, were you, were you surprised? I'm like, yeah, I was surprised, because I didn't know, you know. But it came off that I was surprised that my art was purchased, which is like, I'm not surprised that my art was purchased. <laughs> I've done a lot of artwork. I've done a lot of interesting things with it in well, the past. Cl- clearly, this place is surrounded by your paintings, well, some of which are impressively large, and I don't even want to... I can't even guess how long they took. Not very long, that one. Oh. <laughs> well, okay. it's... it's uh, some of the small, it's, smaller ones took a lot longer. Yeah. Uh, it really just depends. How long did the duck tree take you? That's a good year. But I worked on The duck tree is my the favorite one, right? No, no. Oh, I might ask permission to put a little picture of that in the article because yeah, sure. it's lovely. Thank you. I, I had no idea I was even part of this. Um, I'm really sorry. I just came in. And you, walk, you walked in. But I, I think I'm going to keep some, some of that. I like it. It's organic. This is about Garrett. No, it's about everything. It's pretty perfect because Crystal's been with me for, <laughs> for, for, for long enough that this is actually entirely accurate. Yeah. I'm curious about something though. Um, what kind of duration do you would you see? How long would you want? Uh, we've had people to stay have. for four days. We've had I've had a friend stay for four months. So it's uh, it's it, since they're house guests, you can kick them out, kick people out whenever you want to. But if you're if it's a good arrangement and someone wants to keep staying there and you enjoy their company, great. Cool. But is this the first time that it's been really applied to just scientists? Um, I think it is. And this is is more about the the trade-off, because because scientists, um, more than other people working in tech, often don't have an immediate payoff for their work. So working in mathematics or some abstract field, there's usually not an immediate economic payoff for your work. Um, even if it ends up being wonderfully valuable for humanity down the line, you know, it, t- it just takes so long for technology and engineering to catch up mm-hmm. to the boundaries of theoretical science. So how do we help with that? Um, make it nicer and easier for people to do this work. Mm-hmm. Give, them, give them better resources. Give them, you know, if you, if you have a nice, really nice house you're not using, sure, open it up and invite uh, house programs. You, you, you do want to check. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'd imagine so. Yeah, so you have, to, you, have to, you have to grow a network of people you've actually met and know them to be decent human beings <laughs> before you invite them to your home. <laughs> Which is true in any case. In any case. Yes. And, uh, and that's the best way to grow it. So if, if anybody uh, really wants to do this, I, the, the best way to grow it is by meeting and hanging out with people in one of these places in person. Uh, when I was in San Francisco... Um, one of the places I visited for a little bit was called the Rainbow Mansion, hmm. which is a, a large group house in, I think it's in Sunnyvale, 
Hmm. But it's a, a, a lot of engineers, uh, NASA engineers, originally got together and rented a mansion in the hills. Really? Mm -hmm. Because they could, it turned out that they could get together and rent a full-on mansion for cheaper than they could rent a collection of individual apartments. Hmm. <laughs> Makes sense. So Things they, scale they, well. they, they, they live in this, uh, you know, and it's still going on. So there, there's this very large, impressive mansion in the hills being uh, lived in by, that's operated as a group house with a bunch of geeks. Are there still any NASA people there? Uh, or is it sort of... I think so. I'm not sure. Yeah. They still have a website up and, and still host events. They're still, they're still going. Huh. But, but yeah, so I would, I would encourage people to, uh, to visit one of these places or to you know, contact me and come visit this one. Hmm. I'll definitely, I'll definitely make it easy for them to, to find you through yeah. this interview and linking and all that. But for this place, your, your, uh, your goal, you have three cabins, working mm -hmm. on finishing three cabins in this yep. lovely backyard where you're growing all kinds of stuff. A, a, a kind of a scary broccoli plant. It's <laughs> more of a broccoli tree. At it's, it's, a, it's a broccoli humunculus <laughs> and, and uh, avos and... Crystal's talking chickens. Oh no! <laughs> don't don't permit roosters though. <laughs> no no no! Not the roosters, just the chickens. Fortunately, our roosters are pretty far away. They don't wake us up. You're lucky. Hard to get away from. Them. And are, do you, you're hoping to get more people? It's kind of starting. Next I, I, year? I'm having no problems getting enough people to <laughs> to come out and visit. Filling the cabins has not been a problem. So you've kind of already started this. Yep. So I didn't even have to. I, I have not publicized it. But I, I announced it to my, you know, friends' networks, mm. and, uh, and people have been coming out to visit. haven't needed to publicize it. <laughs> <laughs> then don't. Always an interview. It, 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 you know, it just goes from word of mouth. <laughs> uh, do you find that has a po has an impact on your own work? I mean, it has the potential to sort of possibly distract you. From your own depth of focus, it, it is distracting, but it's a uh, it's a it's a great way to but it could also make friendships and so have social interactions. I mean, I, I really love you know coming in here, and cooking dinner, and sharing, sitting down and sharing dinner with a bunch of people and talking about what's going on in you know science and the world in general. Mm. And it's uh, it's, it's just been great. Mm. I guess to to start to wrap up, I I'm curious what it was like for you being able to do this full time. I'm I just am curious what that journey was like for you to be able to to do what you love. I mean, it's kind of a theme that comes up a lot when I do interviews is how how are you able to do well, what you It's funny, you know, so having come up with this uh this new idea in physics that turned out to be pretty spectacular. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, especially after struggling with this stuff for so long. I mean, on the one hand, it was, you know, there were some rough patches where, you know, I didn't, didn't know where my funding was going to come from. I didn't know, you know, if I was going to be able to keep going with this research at, at a couple stages. But at the most part, I've, you know, always had enough money to eat. You know, I've never had to worry about where this meal was coming from. You know, when I've had to, I've done consulting projects here and there. Because it's consulting? And, and scientific uh, consulting, even, even some programming here and there. Um, but mostly scientific consulting, mostly physics consulting. Stock market investments also done quite well. It was mostly Apple and Netflix stock proceeds that let me buy this house. <laughs> and at the risk of a terrible tangent, did you buy when they were at 14? I did. So next... Good job. When, when I was in graduate <laughs> school, I had a, a Next computer. So when, when Next bought Apple for a negative amount of money, I Pretty knew much. that... Knew that Apple's uh, operating system was going to be next step, mm -hmm. and that is that is good. Mm -hmm. so I've been using it for years, mm -hmm. so I took all my graduate stipend and invested in Apple stock when, when people thought Apple was going to fold. <laughs> Smart. And then I moved to Maui. <laughs> that's a that's a kind of a risky bet whenever you put a, a sizable amount of money in the stock market, but that paid yeah. off. But I've been playing around with the stock market since I was a little kid. I mean, my I, I would get. A little bit of money as gifts from relatives and Christmas and birthday. And my my father would, uh, I'd want to buy toys, and my father would take that money and say, no, 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 let's invest in some stocks. <laughs> so you know, it didn't seem like he was the coolest dad <laughs> when the this time. started. 
Right. But when I bought my first car, he was a much cooler dad because that, that, that car came from, from my We had invested uh, in Tofuti, which was a frozen yogurt. It did stock did very well. I bought a car. Was he uh, connected to that industry or did he just knew how to nope. do it just, independent? Uh, he, he just did... Because uh, now they're an independent company, make it a little bit easier. Yeah. You know, people like E-Trade... Which I'm not no, we used to we used to trade. I forgot what company we used to trade, but uh, I used to just look look in the newspaper. So when I forgot my first job, I remember just working my butt off all day. You know, I made something like twenty eight dollars, and I'd come home and I'd open the newspaper. And it's like we calculated it out. It's like oh, my stocks are up six hundred dollars today, or <laughs> my stocks are down three hundred dollars today, and it was just so in you know yeah just a whole separate reality from. The ridiculous amount I'd had to work for at minimum wage to make twenty eight dollars. Right, right. So, so just by making the right calls in the stock market, by putting some thought into it, <clears> and and uh, and you know balancing the risks, <clears> doing a little bit of research, you could just do much better for much less work. <laughs> yeah. So I, I I pretty much swore never to have a real job again, and haven't. Wow. So you kind of self taught primarily on how to. Yeah. I mean, with your dad as well. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have any advice for beginning investors? Like if I wanted to, I don't own any stock at the current moment. I've been thinking about it. Yeah, take on as much risk as you can handle. So if, you, if you're going to play, you, you have to kind of consider it as gambling. But once you, once you do that, mm -hmm. I mean, you, you can... What is a gamble in my mind? <laughs> well, I mean, you, you should take, I mean, you should take a chunk of it that you can't afford to lose and, and bet that conservatively. Mm -hmm. But if you have a chunk that you are willing to gamble then you should make stronger bets with it based on what you think is going to do well that you don't think everybody else knows is going to do well. So the, the only way to, to make money really is with insider information. Hmm. But that insider, you don't have to be inside to have that insider information. You can have it through thinking the situation out, through thinking which, which companies are going to do the best in the marketplace over time as it evolves. And I've had some... Uh, luck with that. I've had some things that were uh, that were terrible, hmm. but you know, if if one stock doubles and another stock drops fifty percent, you've still made a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> do you? How much research do you go? I mean, you you try to pull up everything you can. Do you read dozens of articles about a company before you um, do it? No, it's not even usually that deep. It's usually it's usually more of thinking through. Uh, what a company's place is in, in the marketplace and among its competitors. Mm. And I, I try to pick companies that uh, I'm pretty sure will, will come out, out on top mm. and aren't already hugely overvalued. <laughs> so that's why, that's why I pick things like Netflix and Arm, who are the dominant, or are becoming dominant players that weren't at the time hugely overvalued. Now I'm not so sure. <laughs> yeah, you can name a few companies that are probably overvalued now. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. The stock market's gotten pretty, uh, pretty elevated. What about other types of investments? Would you recommend once you once you get a sizable nest egg, you can start. I mean, the more money you have, the easier it is to leverage it to make more. Mm -hmm. So big players actually just change markets. I mean, you can, can do outrageous plays, but once you've got you know, a few hundred thousand dollars to play with, you can start playing with land. Right. And a great way to make money, if you, if you, if you really want to make money, the, the best way I know of to make money is to, to buy fixer of properties for very little money, fix them up, renovate the houses, either yourself, yourself and some partners, or with work crews, get, that, get a house looking good, and then put it back on the market and sell it for a lot more money than you paid for it. That's 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 the best way, but it's 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 hard work. Yeah. You and you have to be good at you know in making the right decisions. You don't want to get stuck with something with terrible damage and pay a premium for it. You, you have to build up the skill for it. Have you done that? Um, I haven't. I I've had friends and relatives do it. Mm. To great success. It is a lot of work, but that's that's absolutely the easiest way to work to make money. And then um, and then once you have once you have millions of dollars. Or you and some partners have millions of dollars, then you can work on development, developing land. So then you look at, is there a place where housing is in demand and land is still cheap for some reason? Can you, is, it, is it possible to buy a, you know, some, truck, some bunch of land and, and it, that's a, a large chunk of land and, and subdivide it into smaller pieces and build on it and sell it? 
that's another way to you know get multiple times your investment back. But all, all these things take work. So you know these aren't things I would encourage young scientists to do. <laughs> sure, play around in the stock market, great, but that takes uh, that that can be done with very little time. Do, do, doing focus. doing larger deals starts taking more time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, it's an interesting question. You know, we only have so much time in our lives, and what do we want to spend it focusing on? It's an interesting balancing yeah. act. Yep. Yeah, I want I want to spend fairly little of it worrying about how to make money. Mm-hmm. I like I like spending my time thinking about physics, hanging out and talking with friends, and surfing. Uh, yeah, the less someone needs to have money as a, as a focus in their life the happier they tend to be, the less energy they have to put about even dealing with it at all, yeah. you know, because it shouldn't be a barrier. It should be... A well, a lot of people make it their goal. Yeah. Like, the, the goal to make your, have much money or make much money, it, 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 seems, it seems very strange. I mean, I've always felt like I had enough money. And um, if I was able to have a little more, great. I can, you know, I can use it or I can save it. Invest it for later, and that's always what I've done. This house was a bit of an extravagance, but you know I really wanted to, to build this up as the, the flagship science hostel, so mm-hmm. I put a bunch of my resources here. But and, and it has taken a lot of my time, mm-hmm. but, uh, but I, I, I don't regret it. I think we've, we've built a good thing here. Yeah. Me too. Well, thank you so much for the interview, and um, I hope. I hope you don't get too many people contacting you now. <laughs> <laughs> I have a huge moat. 2,000 mile moat. It's true. For more, visit myth.li. That's M-Y-T-H dot L-I.